1: So tonight, um, we're going to have a reading from Claudia, a discussion with Josie, a Q&A, and then I'll set up a signing table. Um, if you would like your book signed, I recommend please purchasing it before the signing begins. Um, and last thing, if everyone could please silence your cell phones. We don't want to interrupt the conversation tonight. All right, and without further ado... Claudia de Hernandez is currently based in Los Angeles, the same city she and her family migrated to when she was a child. Hernandez is a poet, editor, translator, and bilingual educator, and writes in English and Spanish, and sometimes weaves in Pocomochi, an indigenous language of her Mayan heritage. Josie Mendez-Negrete, professor of sociology, teaches Mexican-American studies at the University of Texas at San Antonio. She was lead editor of the Chicana Latina Studies, the Journal of Mujeres Activas en Letras y Cambio Social, from 2009 to 2014. She is the author of Las Hijas de Juan, Daughters Betrayed, and A Life on Hold, Living with Schizophrenia. Her most recent project is a social history of activist leaders in San Jose, California. If you could all please put your hands together and give a warm skylight welcome to Claudia and Josie.
0: It's an honor to be here today. For me, this is a bendicion. It is a welcome as well as an appreciation for a brilliant woman who's come into my life to tell stories so we don't forget the stories of our ancestors and the life we've had to deal with. I am gonna share some stories that have parallel meaning with the life that Claudia has had and I speak the stories so the people that come from me and those that came before me do not forget what it was like to have lived those stories. Border crossing. Tia Luisa, may she rest in peace, told me that after crossing the border, I almost drowned. According to her, my mother was carrying me in her arms when she tripped and I fell into a water canal. Tio Magdaleno fished me out of the irrigation ditch. Tia claimed this was a sign that I was destined to live a long life in El Norte. I, La Mojadita, would forever be tied to the United States. They say I was made in Texas, but born in Mexico. My family claims I was conceived during my mother's earliest visit to Hueslaco deep in the valley of South Texas along the U.S.-Mexico border when my father worked as a bracero. Certain I would be a firstborn son, people claim that when my mother was eight months pregnant, my father sent her back to Mexico to have me. A true nationalist and a patriot, he wanted el primer hijo que nunca tuvo to be born in Tabasco, Zacatecas, the place of his birth. Tu padre siempre deseó un primer hijo, one of my tías would often volunteer, reminding me that I had not been his first choice for a child. To a surprise, I was born. He never let me forget I was a girl. He never forgave me for it. Other relatives say that my first contact with the United States was when I was three months old. Continuing their movement back and forth, my family lived in West This was when Tia Luisa and her husband Magdaleno came to work in the fields with my father, mother, and I returned to be with him. The way they recall it all crossed the Rio Bravo safely. No one was arrested. No one drowned. South Texas became my sometimes home. 16 months younger than I, my sister Maggie was born there. Tabasco became my haven. Living in Los Unites, Sin Papeles. Our permanent crossing to El North that took place when I was almost 12. When my mother returned to Tabasco to get Felisa and, and me, it was 1960, I think. She had been living with our father, Mage, and my little brothers, Juan Ernesto and Tomas in Chicago. Felisa and I had yet to meet the two youngest boys. When they came to pick us up, Maggie had changed. She was quieter. The only time she talked was to show off her English. To Felisa and me, who spoke only Spanish, her speech sounded like dogs barking. Any time she tried to impress us with her English, we responded in the Spanish language of dogs,
1: wow, wow, wow.
0: We made fun of Maggie because we envied her. She had lived with our mother without us. Still, we didn't want to leave our tias, Feliz, and I didn't want to go with her to El Norte. We wanted to stay in the comfort of Tabasco. We liked living under the care of our great aunts. With them, we had everything, even if it meant putting up with Pepes, constant teasing her son. He called me Pinacate the name of a round black beetle bug that clicked like me with my love for talking. Because of an almost single brow that joined her nose bridge, he called Felisa, cejas de burro, donkey eyebrows. This apodo made her shave those eyebrows to put a stop to the nickname only to get another one, la calavera, the skull head. Pepe, who read Russian books, was a staunch critic of the gringos. Every chance he had, Pepe told me he saw no need for us to go to the United States. The way he saw it, the United States said nothing over Mexico as the almost big brother that he became. He didn't want us to leave his mother, but he loved us too. In his bantering, Pepe teased that the immigration would force me to deny who I was, that they would make me reject my country, force me to step on the Mexican flag, Josefina. No te vayas a los Estados Unidos. Cuando llegues a la frontera, te harán rechazar tu país y te harán pisotear el estandarte nacional. I cried, imagining myself spitting and stamping on the flag. Didn't want to leave my little pueblo. They'll turn you into a gringa. pocha y nunca más volverás. I cried because I wanted the option to come back, even though I didn't know what a pocha was didn't want to turn white, didn't want to go. But we didn't leave, we didn't leave right, right away. Before going to El Norte, my mother stayed about six months to have our papers fixed. Amanda I went to the US consulate in Guadalajara to see about visas to come to Los Estados Unidos. I remember going with her because that was when I saw the first black man in my life. He was huge getting off the bus at the Central Camionera. Having lived in Chicago, my mother was accustomed to seeing blacks. She didn't pay them any mind. But she scolded me for staring, turned my head in a different direction, and told me I was being maleducada. She had not raised me to stare at people. At the end, the gringo said to my mother, you necesitar mil quinientos, por muchacha. He told Mama ama that we needed to post a bond for each family member. Couldn't even imagine what $1,500 was like, much less that, that for Felisa and I, she had to come up with $3,000. And we had lived on $1,250 a month. So they decided to bring us sin documentos illegally, Later, Felisa and I realized that this would be another excuse to take advantage. Still, we had no clue. Soon, we were packing our belongings and saying our goodbyes. We visited friends, teachers, and relatives. When we finished visiting all of them, we stayed inside the house. Hardly wanting to go out as the time to depart drew near. Felisa and I cried for anything and everything. We didn't want to leave our tails behind. The day came for us to leave. I was just a child. My aunts disappeared into the mountains of Tabasco as our father drove away. With eyes clouded by tears and the distance, I was left with only that memory to cherish. I wonder if I'd ever see them again. Leaving Tabasco was like a funeral when no one dies. My sister and I had no choice. We had to go to to the United States with our parents. The trip north took about three days and nights. We slept in the car buying food as we drove. On our way, we crossed several Mexican states. My father drove through Zacatecas. For the first time, we were able to see a land carpeted by cacti. With its tropical and lush environment, Jalisco looked like a paradise in the South Pacific paintings without the ocean. In Colima, we ate our first seafood tacos. This was before my stomach se agringo and I had become accustomed to U.S. food. I don't remember Sinaloa. Baja California was a rocky desert. It looked like another world to me. Scantily clad in greens, a cacti of the desert jetted out to create a landscape that was unfamiliar red, brown, and golden colors, as well as rocks the size of boulders made the northern Mexican desert surreal. The tale of a white horse m- making its way to the border, El Caballo Blanco, este es el corrido del Caballo Blanco, que llegó un día desde, oh, anyways, by Jose Alfredo Jimenez, played over and over again on the car radio. We finally reached the Mexico-U.S. border our father left us in Tijuana. We stayed there for a while until we made arrangements for us to go across. In Tijuana, I met a distant cousin named Lupe, who was about 15. She was was pretty fast company. Tried to teach me to smoke cools para mirarme mas cool. Almost coughed my lungs out, vowing never to smoke a cigarette again. I was easily impressed by my urban cousin who, look, who looked city slick with her makeup. She talked me into trimming my eyelashes because she convinced me that they grew longer when you cut and brush them with olive oil. <laughs> I'll never forget Lupe. I still have a bald spot on this side, which is a reminder of her. Deep inside, I wanted to look like Lupe. I wanted to be fast company. She was so beautiful. I was so rancho next to her. When my father finally came to pick us up, we crossed the US border in a two-tone red and white force sedan. We didn't have to show any papers. No one made me dance on the Mexican flag, and I was asleep until we reached Los Angeles. I'm gonna read you a tiny piece from my next book that came out and I told mijo I was going to read it to you. So I feel like if I don't read it, I had had three of mine to read, but you're going to have to buy the book if you're interested. The next book is A Life on Hold. If you're interested, they'll order it for you because apparently there was vendor issues. Um, Where am I? Can you tell I haven't read it much? Oh, here it is. If in case you're wondering, it says uh, living with schizophrenia. My firstborn and oldest son is schizophrenic, undifferentiated type, and he's lived with a disease about oh my God since he was um, about 29 years, and um, he's gone from 25 psychotropic medications to two, and he has. He's living an amazing life, but this was so good for him in 2009. Life is hell. No one believes me. No one cares. All I hear is laughter and stares. I deal with my demons. Life is hell. And all I have is a padded room, a jail cell. If just one person would understand, maybe I'd live the life I know I can. I'm not crazy. Believe me, I'm sane. I'm mentally ill and in a lot of pain. Forgive me, world, for having morals, hopes, and dreams. I'm living life wanting to scream. All I believe in is lost and shot. Oh, well, I don't want to live. I'm already in hell. Claudita Tiadoro, you are the most amazing creative person I've met in my uh, in my time of working in the academy, and I see 10 books more coming our way from you. <laughs> so don't disappoint me. On that note, I'd like to announce that a book we co- uh, cooperated on, on, her edited uh, book that came out last year called Women, Mujeres, Isho, Revolutionary Visions has received an international book award. So... Talk, talk about premios. Thank you, Claudita. Thank you, Justin. you need the I'll switch
2: with you. Wow, thank you for that introduction. <laughs> I am so happy to be here, everyone. Thank you so much for your support and for being here tonight, for helping me celebrate the birth of my book. I. Thank you from the bottom of my heart, all of you for being here tonight. Um, Last night I was telling Josie that when I was seven years old, I had entered a, a poetry contest in my hometown, Mayuelas. And when I went on stage, I got so nervous that I completely forgot my name. I couldn't remember my own name. And I'm about to read you a poem that's about my name. And it's titled It's titled, it's titled, facts on-
0: We don't memorize our books. (laughs) We
2: don't, especially when we're in front of so many people. Facts on how to be born, life. This is what the partera told my mother the day I was born. Boys are usually born facing down and girls are born facing up. Not you, mama scolded me. You came out of me facing up, a girl but midway out, you spun your body around like the head of a barn owl, ghostly pale. There were times you acted like a girl, other times like a baron, like a tomboy, I assured her. Tia Zoyla buried your umbilical cord next to the tallest amarindo tree. I always wondered which one. They were all tall, unlike my sisters and I, distinct in size, shape, and temperamento. No one questioned it. We assumed we all had to do with our ancestors' genes. Two months later, after my birth, Mamá registered me under Claudia Denise Hernandez Ramos at the Civil Registry of Guatemala. The secretary type Penis instead of Denise. I grew up pretending I was never given a middle name. At the age of 19, I returned to Guatemala alone to change the P to a D. I never questioned why Mamá never did. On that trip, I discovered my last name should have been Rossi instead of Hernandez. Oh, Mother, I love you dearly. That's all I was able to say to her over the phone. So the next poem that I'm going to read you talks about, mentions um, Efrain Rios-Mont, who was a dictator in the 1980s, and he died in 2018 at the age of 91. In 2013, he was convicted of genocide and crimes against humanity and but the, his lawyer appealed and overturned the convention on May 2013, and he got house arrest instead. So here it goes. Nothing ever hurt. Fragmented memory. By the time I was five, I became numb, seeing Papa pass out in the cantina, drunk and penniless, his pockets inside out, lying on the street naked, while Mama, while Guatemala's army baptized the Chichumatan Mountains with rifles, machetes. At home, Mama became a see-through cup, ready to explode from the deepest red of her chest. There were times she wished Rios Mont regimes would take him away, but instead she broke wings. She broke things with her wings. Empty plumes impregnated the air. It was usually Tia Soila who broke up things. She broke up. I'm sorry. It was usually Tia Soila who broke up their fights. Mama would gather the three of us under her arms. Her collar adorned with purple pearls while Papa's eyes bleeding with whiskey was scarred by her tacón. Far away, the mountains moan with the exiled people's burning trees screeching bones. I don't mean to tell you how my sister Consuelo cried l- latching to Mama's thigh, begging her not to look for him and fight him like a mad quetzal. Consuelo grew emotionally thick wings. I don't mean to tell you how my sister at the age of nine became my second mother. Soon she developed a special gaze, one when one eye can see right through you while the other one lingers for imaginary horizons to perch on. What I do mean to tell you is how I felt ecstatic running from house to house, seeking shelter, hiding from papa's fluttering wrath. I distracted myself playing by the river bank, creating dolls of mud and clay, bloodstained from the mouth of Rio Negro, Rio Ardiente. I pretended to be God. I never asked why we always went back. I laughed out loud and spun around, blurring everyone's faces until I fall on the ground, skinning my fragmented memory. Nothing ever hurt. Now at 34, I pick mama's broken feathers from my throat while 86-year-old Rios Montt spreads his wings in the comfort of his golden home, unexpected overturned return, veredicto. So I wrote this poem when I was 34. That was six years ago, I'm 40 now. And he's no longer alive, Rios Montt. The next narrative essay that I'm gonna read you, it's titled Northbound. This is when my mother left my sisters and I behind due to domestic violence. Um, here it goes. Mama didn't have the courage to wake me up at five in the morning the day I left. The day she left illegally to the United States. Tia Soila saw her sitting in the dark, caressing my face and whispering in my ear how much she loved me. Even though I was asleep, t- trapped in a dream, I remember hearing her distant voice. I adore you, my son popito. Why didn't I w- force my eyes open? When I woke up, mama was gone. Why didn't you wake me up, Soila? I cried. Claudita, your mother told me not to. She thought it would be best. She was afraid that if you saw her leave, she wouldn't find the strength to look you in the eye and still go. I couldn't believe mama was gone, just like that. I was seven and I felt an emptiness gnawing at my insides. The house didn't look the same. It was missing her lavender smell. Both my older sisters were still crying even though they got to say goodbye to her. At least they got to walk her to the bus station and hug her one last time. Why didn't they wake me up? I could have have smelled her face again. She'll be back for us, Claudita Consuelo said crying, trying to comfort me, but she couldn't even hold her tears back. Consuelo was only nine years old, but sometimes she acted like she was older than Cindy. Cindy was 15 when Mama left Pal Norte. I didn't get to see much of Cindy's face after she came back from the bus station. She hid, her, she hid on the corner bed in the room we all shared and skipped her meals. I hope she doesn't get sick, Diazuela said, looking at Consuelo and me. She'll get hungry eventually, Consuelo responded. I was already hungry. My, hungry, my, hung, my hunger grew more every day after Mama left. Soila's eyes were red and swollen. She didn't cry in front of us. She loved Mama like a daughter. Soila had taken care of Mama since she was six years old. Mama had asked Soila to care for us while she was gone. I heard her pleading the night before, please don't leave my girls alone ever. I beg you, she also She also asked Mama Toya, her mother, to help out whenever possible. They knew Mama would never leave her daughters behind unless it was a life threatening emergency, like I once heard the Asoila say. I knew what the words life, threat, and emergency meant, but I had no idea about the whole phrase. Mama promised the Asoila that she'd send money home every month as soon as she settled down and found a job. Later that day, once the family and neighbors heard the news that Mama had left for the U.S. About 15 people ranging, ranging from five-year-olds to 80-year-olds gathered at the Diazuela's house demanding more details about Mama's trip as if it was any of their business. The whole trip had been a secret. No one knew about it except the Diazuela and Mama Toya. Cindy didn't even bother to come out of the bedroom to greet everyone when they arrived. She stayed in the dark and Consuelo kept her company. I was on the patio in the middle of all conversations. They sat around asking questions and saying things that didn't make sense to me at all. They always quieted down whenever Consuelo showed her face in the corridor. As soon as she would go back inside the room, they continued with the chismet, gossiping about Papa like there was nothing better to talk about. I listened quietly, pretending I didn't understand. There were some things I did understand, but I continued to play with my sticks and rocks, a naive, naive look on my face. This was the only way I could find out more about the drama between Mama and Papa. Sure, I had seen the physical pain they inflicted on each other, but I wanted to understand why. What happened between them, between us? Why did we fall apart? Who knows how how he's going to react when he hears the news about Victoria, said one. Papa was in the capital working or getting drunk. She had to get away from Raul, said another. He was not a good husband, said a random man. But Raul loves his daughter, said a neighbor. Last time he drank, he threatened to kill her, said cousin Celia. Everyone was talking at the same time. I didn't know who was saying what or why. But all the achievement made me sick. I didn't know what to feel anymore. I didn't feel, I didn't feel like crying. I felt a pain in my chest like some invisible hands were wringing my insides. Papa wants to kill Mama. Is that why she left to El Norte? I, was, I wanted things back to normal. I wanted Mama there with me. I didn't want to go, go to bed without Mama caressing my face. The day was quickly vanishing. How far away was this infamous North that everyone was talking about? I couldn't wait to be there with my mom. She promised to come back for the three of us and take us there to the promised land. I'm going to read you a poem in Spanish because I have Tia Negra here. And I wrote this poem in Spanish first. Tejiendo la niebla. And this is the title of my book, Needing the Fog. Tejiendo la niebla. Descalzo uno emigra a tierras extrañas. Hay quienes no olvidan. Hay quienes ensartan su patria en el alma. La tierra no tiene fronteras, murmuran los pies reventados. Las huellas que implantan transmiten nostalgia. Hay tierras calientes que a veces se enfrían. Hay campos dorados que tejen la niebla. Hay volcanes que arrojan sus piedras de pomo. Y uno aquí escupiendo cenizas en la lejanía. La tierra no tiene fronteras, suspira la arboleda. El árbol exiliado no logra evitar que su fruto florezca. El viento que arrastra la almendra y la se que engendre en tierras ajenas. Needing the fog. Barefoot when emigrates to foreign lands. There are those who do not forget. Those who interweave their motherland into their soul. The soil knows no border, murmur their splinter feet. Their footprints deep-rooted radiate with nostalgia. There are warm soils that at times become frozen, golden fields that blurred with fog. There are volcanoes that expel rock of pumice, and I'm over here spitting ash from afar. The soil knows no border, moans the green forest. The exiled tree cannot prevent its seed from flourishing. It is the wind who drags it to foreign lands where it inevitably propagates. And The last poem that I'm going to read you. It's called "Kimayu," which in Pokomchi it means "Come over here, Benipakam." Kimayu, Benipakam. Mis entrañas se contraen. Es mi aliento que se escapa. Va en busca de mi gente. Oigo un eco que retumba. Voces dulces, lengua tierna. Kimayu, Benipakam. Corre viento que me rosa con olor a incienso. La marín vacío y lejos. Son los morros, han llegado con sus danzas de venados. Oigo, uno, oigo un eco que retumba, voces dulces, lengua tierna. Quimayú, vení Los repiques de campanas en los lejos siempre t- estallan. Ese acorde no se olvida. En mi piel cae la serra, esta quema y hace llaga. Que me adiestra a apreciar mi nueva existencia. Oigo un eco que retumba, voces dulces, lengua tierna. Kimayu, vení Mi alma ruge, ya no tiembla. Ha encontrado al nuevo Eden. En Pocomchi, Subnuk, Ushul, mi corazón está contento. Kimayu, come over here. My insights contract. It is my breath that escapes. It goes in search of my people. I hear an echo that resonates. Sweet voices, tender tongue. Kimayu, come over here. A wind of incense graces my core. The marimba keys chime in the distance. It is the Moors, they have come with their ancient dances. I hear an echo that resonates, sweet voices, tender tongue. Kimayu, come over here. The clamor of the bells from the temple resound. That melody can never fade. On my flesh, I feel a wax burning. It leaves scars that teach me to appreciate my new existence. I hear an echo that resonates, sweet voices, tender tongue. Kimayu, come over here. My fierce soul no longer trembles. I have found my new Eden. In Pokomchi, Sunukushul, my heart is content. Thank you so much.
0: Are you facilitating, or are we doing it ourselves? I think
2: Q and A, or are we having a
0: conversation? Okay. What? Okay. What time is it? A, a conversation is. I'm going to ask Claudita something, and she's going to ask me something. You know, kind of dialogue. Um, what time
2: or, is it? <laughs> we have plenty of time. Josie, last night we were talking about Uh abandonment issues. Yes, ma'am. We both have experienced those, haven't we? Yes, we have. Um, And we were talking
0: about how the separation from our mother was three years. Three years for her and three years for me. That's how long it took for our mother to return and come and retrieve us and the trauma and the pain and the hurt that remains with you for a lifetime. Right now, Claudia's blessing us with her tears. (laughs)
2: Um,
0: I blessed you with self interruptions. Whenever I read from my book, it came out the first time in 2002, the second time it came out in 2006, and it was reprinted in 2010 by Duke University Press. Every time I read, I go back into the pain. And Claudia is more open with her emotions, so she shares the healing process of tearing. For me, todavía se me atora en la garganta, and my voice breaks because the pain resides in me. This is my center of pain. Because I learned to cry or not cry on command with the despotic um, evil man that I got for a father. And so when you're dealing with trauma and you're dealing with pain that you've internalized, it remains in yourselves for the rest of your life. If you don't process, if you don't make, take it out to the world and share it with people, you carry the trauma as far as seven generations forward in addition to the seven generations before you. I think Claudia is a warrior for sharing her words and her voice. And I told you that yesterday. You did. And um, thank you for blessing us with your words, with your voice. And for sharing your healing
2: with me I didn't expect to cry today I I had been practicing at home my reading and today it just felt different I it just it, it took over me I don't know what happened but you're right it has to do with the healing process and Thank you, Josie, thank you for your words, thank you for always lifting me, for always saying the right words to me.
0: Thank it's you. easy to do that with you.
2: <laughs> thank you.
0: Pregunta. Okay, I guess Pregunta time is up now. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, let him, I've known him over 40 years, he's got his rights. <laughs> concentration camps at the border, if you could speak to them, what message would you give them so they could have
2: the same resiliency that clearly you have had to overcome that, that trauma? You first. What, what message I would give those kids? Oh my goodness, Sal. I would tell them to. Oh, my God, Sal. So. It breaks my heart what's happening in the border right now and what those children are going through. It's its inhumane. And nothing you could tell them, it's going to soothe them. It's This is going to traumatize them for life, what they're doing to them. It's... I, there's no words, I I can't think of anything to tell them. It's it's the hardest thing they could go through.
0: Claudia and I talked a little bit about that yesterday. And um, Claudia was living a situation in Guatemala. Uh, to come to a better place. And during her generational journey, which is, what, 20 years from what's happening right now? 30 years. 30 years ago. Um, She didn't have any corrupt coyotes on the way. There were no men to abuse her. She was treated well along the way. And things were not as they are now in two-nation states that have turned a war against poor people. And we're not talking just about the United States, we're also talking about Mexico is complicit with the United States. Um, For me, I was coming home to a place that wasn't home and the monster was in my car and in my house. It doesn't have to be strangers. In your own family, traumatization happens in a daily way. Three out of five girl children are sexualized, sexually abused by members of the immediate family. If you want to see the stats, they're readily available to you. Now with um, El Tratante de Blancas and all this abuse that's going on as a result of uh, elite males wanting to violate girl children, look at what's going on in the media right now. I don't think I could have ever imagined to warn members of my family or people in my community about the horror I was coming to. But the one thing I would encourage them to do is to use their creative expression. You see the pain? Their creative expression and voice to deal with the daily uh, trauma that they're experiencing. There's a lot of art. There's a lot of play therapy. There are people coming to see them. There are people taking gifts. There are people bringing in clothes. Uh, there's so many people in the community from both nations coming to help the children. I would tell the, well, El Pendejo, excuse me, El Presidente doesn't, uh, doesn't hear, he doesn't listen, he doesn't have respect for people that don't look like him and have the resources he has. But I would tell human beings like yourselves to do whatever you can and to send messages, even if it's a note to one child, uh, to let them know that they're not alone. I think that would save me to be able to tell my story was that somebody believed my story and told me that I was not alone and in her own words told me that she knew what it was like to walk my steps. That turned my world. And that's when I decided that I would speak truth to power and write about the pain and trauma that girl children experience so I can educate people about it. Okay. So whatever you can do so, on your end is what's going to help. When we're in the middle of the trauma, it's hard to hear other people, especially people who have a home, who have shelter, who have food, who have documents, and aren't fearing returning to a place that has betrayed them and oppressed them.
2: Last year, I, you know Marcos, right? Yeah, last year I went with a group of friends to Tijuana to visit some shelters and to see the, to visit the, the asylum seekers to see what they needed. And the only thing that I was able to do was read to some children. That was my gift to them, to sit down and just read to them. That was one of the things that I was able to do at that time, at that moment. Just sit down with them and give them some literature and just read to them. That's what I did. That was the only thing that I was able to give them at the moment.
0: You can't ask another question, Sal. So somebody else. To ask. <laughs> you have a question, Nakor? No? Are you just saying hi? Dígame, <laughs> señora.
2: How old was I when I started writing? I think my voice started, it emerged when I was, where's Dr. Sarmiento? There, there you are, Dr. Sarmiento. My writing started when I was in your class. That's when I started writing. When I, when I had my, my daughter, that's when I started writing. In your class, when we started writing books. Thanks to you. Thank you. Thank you for giving me that gift.
0: Other questions? Do you write in
2: Spanish or in English, or does it depend? I write in both languages. Mm-hmm. I do.
0: Híjole. I'm gonna to have to sing you a song if you're not asking questions. <laughs> Ryan, you out of here. Yes. Can you talk about the process of, like, where did this idea
2: of this memoir come from, or how did it begin, and then how did you get to this? The memoir, I started writing the first story, I, the first narrative essay that I wrote, I wrote it in 2005 in one of my English courses, and I put it away. And and then I, like every year I would write a one or two, and I never thought about putting it together for a manuscript, not until I, I did my MFA. I started putting together all my, my writing together with my poetry, and I submitted everything together for my MFA, for my writing. That's when I, that's what I turn in for my 100 page, Right, Lorinda, that's what we had to turn in, right? The thesis, yeah. That's what we submitted, that's what I submitted. And then months later, I remember submitting that to to the feminist press, and it won an award, and they published it as a book. The Louise
0: Meriwether Award, which is very prestigious for (laughs) first author. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. How did
2: you arrive at the title? The title is it's a poem that I wrote. I was driving to San Francisco one time and I wrote the Spanish poem first and then I translated it into English and and then I just decided to name the the manuscript that. Yes. For me, it's very important because I I tend to think a lot in Spanish, and I write a lot in Spanish, and then I translate my work. Before, when I started doing that, I had somebody else translate my work, but then I decided to start translating my own work. Um, it's it's so important to me, ha- having that ability to do both and to express myself in both languages. It's It's very important. It's it's i i can't i can't express how how beautiful it is to express yourself in both languages like it's 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 like a song you know what i mean like i what can you say Josie what can can you help me with this
0: what for me um the ability to have intersectionality in the work that you do allows you different creative expressions to come out. I don't call myself a poet, but I write poetry. I um, Most of Las Hijas de Juan, Daughters Betrayed, came out in English for me. But that is a testimony to that my consciousness and my ability to be critical of the world emerged in the English language. So to tell the story, I had to do it in the language of my third colonization, you know, as an immigrant girl who left a nation that she loved and a community that she adored where she was loved and protected. And so in order for me to reach a wider audience, I made the choice to write it in to write it in English and to very clearly exclude the active I subject in the words because I had no power when I was living this life. And while some people understand that that's a strategy to write in different ways, um, especially people who do literary criticism Some people who educate children, you know, uh, LA County Unified adopted it when it first came out as a reading piece. The criticism was that I didn't know how to write English, so why am I publishing a book by Duke University Press? I think that what you try to do is you try to speak in the languages of the audience that you're most able to write. And for me, poetry is uh, floricanto. Okay, it's the optimum expression of the creative mind. And uh, the narrative allows me to tell my story from multiple vantage points, and I think that's what Claudia does exceptionally well. So, you know, that she can write in both languages. She forgot to talk about Pokonchi. That's a third language, okay? Yes. Even though we think it's not a language, it is a language. It is a language. Okay. So three languages.
2: Yes, and I think the fact that the Feminist Press published all three languages, I think it's such a gift, it's so beautiful that they allowed me to do that. I am so thankful for that, and it's such a privilege that they did that with me, and I'm just blessed. I I am, I truly are. Is there one language that holds at your heart? Espanol. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Say that again? When as a mm, let me see in my late 20s, in my late 20s. That's when that's when I started, yes, in my late 20s. When, when you
0: write as a child, you see that as a language of expression where nobody else will hear, hear you, nobody else will listen to you, and nobody else understands. It allows you to historicize and put in black and white the experience that you're living. I began writing when I was about, about eight years old, But with that, I also began singing. I began painting. And so for me, the creative arts were my survival. So whenever I could rely on them, and the reason I'm bringing it up is not just because of me, because Claudia has been doing the same thing all along. She's a ceramicist. She's a photographer. She's a painter. She's a storyteller. She's a poet. And she relies on all of those gifts to tell us her story. The cover of the book is her photograph. Okay, So again, you know, from creativity, you know, there was a turn around to healing and sharing the word with other people. Not to harm anybody, and not to expose anybody, or not to shame anybody, but to show people there are different ways of healing. And I'm going to tell you, I have been Um, cast aside from some family members because I told our story. Because they're embarrassed. They did not see this as a process of speaking truth to powers for liberation or for healing. So, you know, for us, it's healing. And it tells the story so other people can see themselves in us. It's not to undermine anybody or to belittle anybody or minimize the value of another person. And Claudia writes from her point of departure, just like me. I, last, two weeks ago, I went to visit a Tio who lives in Pico Rivera. He's on the Mendes side of the house. That's my paternal line. And he started telling me a story about Maria La Culebra, who was the prostitute of the town I grew up in, and then he was telling me that he had alcahueteado my father. Anybody know what the, the term alcahuete? When somebody gives you a esquina, gives you an inroad into a thing? Well, my father, when he was courting the prostitute of the town, I was a little girl in parochial school, And I confronted this woman and told her to stop effing around because she was harming my mother, okay? And, you know, why am I telling you that? Because my tios never read my book, and he was telling that story. And so I said, look, Mayo, his name is Ismael, Jose Maria Ismael. I said, look, Mayo, you're being a misogynist, you're being a sexist, You're being a pig. You are my uncle, but if you don't see that you were harming my mother with you helping my father to seek the services of of a prostitute when he's coming all the way from Chicago to visit my mother and the family, you didn't do us any help. You know, I wrote the story because I lived it, but I didn't know his side of the story. Okay, You know why they called her La Culebra? Because she walked and slither like a snake. She'd pass by and they'd go, Shh. Wow. Shh. That was the, the, the calls by the dudes seeking her services. Now, am I insulting my tío, am I insulting Juan Jose Mendez Rodriguez, who was my father, he's dead now? No, I'm telling from a little girl's perspective what it was to dishonor and devalue women in our town, that's all I wanted to say. Not, not expose or put anybody down. I don't know if that relates, but <laughs> trying to make some hooks here. <laughs> so is
1: there a moment when you realize that you're no longer socially complicit, that you suddenly become aware that you're reaching across society and norms and the family and the town you live and you're actually reaching across a barrier for someone like yourself who has suffered some of the things. Does that moment occur to you? Or do you always feel alone as you write your way out of this story? Or how how is that experience of
0: because there is a political moment. That's what drives me to write.
2: when you expose certain scenes in the book, there's certain passages in my book that I do that, but um, I have to do it. There's no way out. There's no other way I could do it. I
0: Covering is not an option. <laughs> Enabling is not an option. Excusing is not an option. That's, that's the complicit of uh, culture of violence in which we live. We protect patriarchy, we practice sexism, we're the best at holding it down, unless we clearly understand how it is that we're participating in
1: it.
2: no i i go for it i i do it i reach over and expose certain things that i'm not supposed to stay quiet and i do it for because i have to
0: i think you're asking a very complicated question but i think it's an important question you know and and is there a moment when we you reach over something critically unlocks you to be able to challenge conditions. For example, I'm interpreting, I hope I'm interpreting correctly. And, and for me, writing is a political process, and there's always a moment. And the moment is different in every time. Las hijas de Juan daughters betrayed is about incest. When my book came out in 2002, it was the first book ever written by a Latina. Uh, a Chicana, because that's what I call myself, okay? And I had people say to me, cochina desvergonzada, you dirty, filthy pig, how can you talk about that? I took that woman on and I said, first of all, do not blame me for the sin of my father, okay? Sexual violence and incest is not about sex, the penis is the weapon of power to control you and oppress you. And that's why I wrote it. And obviously you need to think about yourself and when you might have experienced something similar to me. It takes, it takes speaking truth against the academy as a professor who became a full professor and is now emerita in the university system, which is the highest you can do, is that you don't write about insist, okay? Because it's not a sexy topic. That's what I was told. You don't write about mental illness, especially if it implicates your family dynamics. People, because people don't think that you can write about the illness inside your home and understand it. I understand the clinical literature, the research literature, and the everyday experience of mental illness as a result of writing the book. Well, now, my third book is The Social History, talking about activist leaders, and all of those people crossed the threshold to create social justice and social change. That's a book I initially wanted to write, but these two were pushing to come out, and as a good mother, I gave birth. One more question, so ask Claudia before you forget.
2: Maria? Claudia, I know your aunt, Matia Soila, mm-hmm. was a very important person in
1: your life. Yes. Years, mm-hmm. you Can you tell us some
2: of the things that she would tell you or do that really helped you to survive those two years without your mom? <laughs> my tia Soila was very, she was a very powerful character in my, in my life. She was very, she was a very strong character. Some of the things that she would do, the way she would carry herself, she would just, I mean, she would sell lottery tickets on the street. She would, she didn't have teeth, but she would just smile regardless. This lady was amazing she was so strong she would wash clothes for people what else would she do she the way she would carry herself nothing would ever nothing would ever bother her she would never get upset about anything Tia Zoyla was always happy she was a happy lady just a very positive role model overall. Beautiful.
0: We were told one more question, so thank you very much. Claudia, thank you for writing your book. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great
2: podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.